Okay, so today we're going to be continuing our Roman series, Romans chapter 14, if you want to turn there in your Bible. And title of today's message is Missing the Mark. There's a story I read once about a Catholic priest. He was cleaning up after a mass and taking out the garbage to the dumpster at an alley behind his church, and it was fairly late at night. As he emptied the garbage into the dumpster, he turned around and a man stuck a gun in the, at the priest's forehead and said, give me all your bleeping money or I'm going to blow your bleeping head off. And the priest, understandably, is shocked as he throws his hands up and the guy says, I said, give me your money. I've killed people before and I'll drop you right here in this alley. I don't care. And the, guy, and the, the priest is, you know, kind of, you know, reaching back to get his wallet and hand it to the person. And, and right when he handed his wallet to the guy and the guy snatches it away, a car drives past and kind of shines its headlights in, into the alley a little bit and keeps driving. But it was just enough light that the robber saw the priest's collar. And the man said, oh, Father, forgive me, Lord. I, I didn't know it was you. I, I would never rob a priest. I would never rob a, a pastor or a man of God. I, I, and especially since you're a priest because I'm a Catholic too. And so he handed him back his wallet and he tucks his gun back in his waistband. And the priest, obviously, clearly relieved. I mean, he just had a gun stuck in his head. And so he invited the thief in. He said, why don't we go and have a sit down and just talk about your life and talk about, you know, maybe, maybe you're on the wrong path. And I'll hear your confession after we have a time of talking and all that and get you back on the right path. And the, the thief gladly, actually gladly, Received that. He went into the church with the, with the priest and they went into the parsonage for a little while and the priest said, I'll be right back. And he brings out a tray with a couple glasses of wine and a cigar and puts it on the table. And the man said, well, what is this? He goes, well, I thought it would just help relax you, you know, have a cigar, have a glass of wine, you know, and all that. He goes, I can't believe you as a priest would give me cigar and a wine. What kind of priest are you? I thought this was story was kind of interesting because you have a guy that was just about ready to kill a person over his wallet yelling at the priest over wine and a cigar. And the irony here is a little thick, isn't it? But you know what? I think that's us sometimes. And that's what I want to talk about, and that's what Paul's talking about today in Romans chapter 14. Let's start out with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you. I thank you, Father, for your word, Lord, even when it, it cuts to the dividing of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. Lord, I ask that it does just that today. Some of us have some pet thing, some pet peeves, some ideas in our head that might be not scriptural and i ask lord that you use this word today to point that out to us to make us better representations to jesus christ to this world father god let your word do its job for us today and make us into living examples of jesus i ask this in your name amen many of you Remember the example that Jesus gave. He was telling, talking about um, judging other people. And he gave us this situation and this problem that all humans seem to have. Jesus said it, when it comes to judging others, we should remove the log from our own eye 
before we try to remove the speck of dust from someone else's. In this case that we had at the beginning of the message, we had a confessed murderer and thief yelling at the priest for smoking a cigar and drinking wine. And in Romans chapter 14, Paul spends an entire chapter exploring this very thought about judging one another. As part of my studying for this chapter and the busyness of this week with everything that was going on, I had Romans 14 playing on a loop on my phone as I drove back and forth to Marshfield. I just listened to it again and again and again and thinking about how to present it to you this morning because when I originally outlined it, I had it was just all over the place. And as I listened to it over and over again, I realized that the final verse in this chapter is actually the key to understanding the, the rest of it. And in the second part of verse 23, Paul says this, Anything that does not come from faith is sin. And I meditated and I thought a lot about that this week. I mentally dissected it. I thought about it. I considered each word carefully and asked God what He really wants us to understand about this this morning. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me and He reminded me, what is the definition of sin? And for any of you hunters and bull hunters, Sin can actually mean, be an archery term. You have it um, up on the screen there, an example of it. The word sin leans, means to literally miss the mark. And in the context of Romans chapter 14, it means that you are judging your brother or your sister on what the Bible calls a disputable manner. It's something that is is not all that important. And if you judge your brother and sister on a disputable matter, then you're missing the point of the entire faith. And the point you're missing is that all of our shame, all of our guilt, all of our failure were poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. And if you've accepted Him as your Lord and God and Savior and King, then Jesus' pronouncement that it is finished means that this debt of sin is wiped out. It's paid for. It's not only paid for, but it's wiped off of heaven's records. Over the last few weeks, we referred to the courtroom scene in Zechariah chapter 3 a few times, where Satan is standing before God accusing the high priest of all kinds of sins. And some of them were probably correct in what, he, in what the high priest had done. Jesus described as the angel of the Lord is standing next to the high priest named Joshua. God the Father rebukes Satan for his accusations because God has the books of remembrance before him. Books of remembrance in the Bible talks about it contains everything you have ever said, thought, or done. The wicked parts, if you have come to Christ, if you have made him your Savior, the wicked parts are erased. They're gone. Father can't see him. There is no record of it in heaven. And all that's left is the Father seeing Jesus standing next to you and saying, Father, this person here is one of mine. And that's why the, God the Father says in Zechariah 3, The Lord rebuke you, Satan, because you're accusing one of heaven's son or daughters of sin, and that's impossible because that person belongs to Jesus. So when we try to use our own personal book of remembrance against a fellow son or daughter of the king, 
Is it any wonder why it draws a rebuke from God? Because when we accuse a brother or sister of sin over a disputable matter, we miss the mark. And what is a disputable matter? I referred to it a little bit ago, but let me get into this a little bit more in depth here. A disputable matter is one that is not strictly forbidden in the whole of the Bible. We're not talking about going back and finding a verse from the Old Testament and saying, oh, right there, or, or finding one verse from the New Testament and saying, oh, right there. We're talking about something that was forbidden throughout the entire Bible. There is something, um, I like the way that Mark Driscoll describes it. He said there are some things that are closed fist issues and some things that are open-handed issues. Uh, open-handed issue for Christians. I'm talking about Christians throughout the scope, whether you're Lutheran, Methodist, Catholic, whatever. An open-handed issue would be something like the gift of tongues. If you have the gift of tongues, that's a wonderful thing. But if I turn around and say, if you don't have the gift of tongues, you're not saved, that's taken an open-handed issue of, if you want to believe that, that's fine. If you don't want to believe it, it's also okay. That's taking that and forcing it on to another person. There's another way of looking at this. Um, another example that I want to give to you, and that is tattoos. Many people who come out of the holiness traditions, especially like the stricter Pentecostals like um, Apostolic or, uh, or uh, Jesus' Name kind of people, United Pentecostal Church, that's what I was looking for, they, they would say that tattoos are utterly sinful. If you have them, you should have them removed. And they base it from one verse in the entire Bible that talks about tattoos, Leviticus 20, 19, 28, that says, Do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. Now, if you take that verse and just read just that verse, it sounds pretty cut and dry. Don't get tattoos. But when you place it in the context of the rest of the chapter and the rest of the Bible, you see that God, through saying this, was calling his people to pure worship and dedication to himself, which included not tattooing their faces, their idols, or themselves with the names of pagan gods, which is what they would do back then, or part of the worship of a pagan god was cutting yourself and letting your blood flow onto the ground. That was part of the worship. You saw this, especially when it comes to Baal, which was pretty much what uh, Moses was talking about when he gave this prohibition. Part of the worship of Baal was literally cutting yourself. You see it when uh, Elijah went to the priests of Mount Carmel and had that little showdown. They, they said that the the um, the priests of Baal were literally sitting there cutting themselves, and it said they cut themselves until their uh, blood flowed freely. So we're talking about people that are just slashing at their arms, thinking that the more they bled, the more they'd get Baal's attention, and the, the quicker he would come down. That's what it's talking about back there in Leviticus. But there are people out there that said you can't be a Christian or a member of a church if you have any ink on your body. There are. And they have that log of legalism in their eyes. And what they're trying to do is remove the perceived speck out of your eye. And they're missing the mark. They really are missing the mark. 
And I wanted to lay the foundation before we got into the rest of the chapter. I'm going to take this in sections and give you the background and application of each part. Romans 14, verse 1 says, Accept him whose faith is weak, without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One of the major conflicts that we had in the early church came from the Jewish dietary laws and their, their insistence on remaining in the Jewish faith and just adding Christianity to that. And, but then trying, they didn't, they didn't just do that with their people, they were trying to force it onto the Gentiles. So Gentiles who may love eating shrimp were all of a sudden couldn't eat shrimp because Jewish dietary law said no. Maybe they liked ham. They couldn't eat ham anymore because the Jewish dietary law said absolutely not. It was an unclean animal. And you see this spoken about in several of Paul's epistles. And it was a huge deal. Particularly, you read a lot about it in the Corinthian church. In the Corinthian church, there were several temples to various pagan idols, all of whom required some sort of animal sacrifice as part of their worship. And after they were finished using the animals as sacrifices in the temples, the temples would then turn around and sell that meat on the marketplace so people could eat it. So the, temp so the temples, all these pagan temples, had meat coming in for free for worship, and they would turn around and sell that meat to the people to eat um, at the marketplace. So it was very lucrative for them. Many Christians during that time, particularly those who came out of these pagan religions, were very hesitant to buy any meat at the market because they didn't know which one may have been used in pagan worship. They chose instead to become vegetarian in their diet because they were convinced in their conscience that it would be more pleasing to God not to eat meat ever again than always having to question where it did or didn't come from. And that the, where the conflict came in is that when they would meet together for a fellowship meal, somebody might bring meat that, was, that they bought in the marketplace. They might bring it and, and, and be sitting there eating it in front of the person who had that in their conscience that they shouldn't eat it, and they would, would have a church fight over it. They would be like, how can you eat that meat where you know where it came from? It came from Apollo's temple, or it came from a, Athena's temple, or it came from the, this person's temple. You, and it was used to worship them, and you shouldn't be eating it. And, and it would cause huge church fights over it. Now, the people who refused to eat the meat had some great ethical points. When they said, why are we enriching the pagan temples that are colluding with Rome? They're paying taxes to Rome. Rome's using that taxes to kill our brothers and sisters. Why are we furthering the temple's ability to grow and influence more people away from Christ? Or doesn't it disturb you, again, that this meat was used to worship a pagan god? And now you're just going to throw some barbecue sauce on it. 
And I would say those are some pretty good ethical points. However, someone could just as easily say, well, well Christ abolished all that. Paul said, I, I am convinced that, there, that all food is good if eaten with thanksgiving. Therefore, I don't care where this meat came from. I'm going to pray over it. I'm going to bless it. Any curse that might be on it will be canceled, and I'm going to go get full. Let me give you a little bit more of a modern application of this. Something that happened recently. Recently on the streaming service Netflix, there was a movie that showed teenage girls dancing and dressing in very provocative ways. I don't know if you heard about it on the news. And because of this, the internet went crazy and said, we need to cancel our Netflix subscriptions and put them out of business because they have this on their streaming service. I kind of made a note that if you have Netflix, it's been streaming R-rated, sexually explicit material since its founding. It's always had that on there. If you look at some of their foreign stuff, it's rated X. So all this offense that everybody is bringing up right now is just another the Christian way of bringing social justice signaling and pandering to the latest thing that we should all be offended by. How many would agree with this statement? Our whole culture right now runs on what we should be offended by. Isn't that where we're at? The media telling us what we should be offended at. Verses 5 through 8, Paul gives another example of this. Some people get offended by the holidays that you keep or special observances. Start an internet fight. People have boycotted the NFL because of all the social justice things they're doing. It's just, it's all run on a fence right now. It's just another example of the same thing we're talking about. Using religion or using something outside of the cross of Christ to try to make yourself superior over someone else. It's missing the mark. And I want to spend the rest of our time this morning exploring what hitting the mark looks like. In other words, living like Christ to one another. Romans 14, starting in verse 9. For this very reason Christ died and returned to life, that He might be Lord of both the dead and the living, you then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let's stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As, it is, as one who is in Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, there for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed by what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your own or do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, of peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. <coughs> Therefore, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that will cause your brother to fall. So how do we apply this to our own lives? How do we not miss the mark of being Jesus toward others? The temptation for those of us who might be a little bit more legalistic with our outlook might be, well, see, God is going to judge us, so we better make sure that we're in line and we're pleasing to Him. And the problem with that thinking is the next verse explains that we will be what we're actually going to be judged by, and that is how we judge others. That plank and that speck judgment, the plank in our own eye and the speck in others. What God is telling us is that we don't get to throw penalty flags at people. Not our job. He didn't give us the striped shirt. That's his job. The church, or people in the church, are only to do it in instances of gross, unrepentant moral failure. And then it's the leadership's job to do it. And it's a job that I hope I never have to do. I've seen it done. It's not pretty. And the reason that God does not allow judgment to come from us is because Satan will then turn around and use it to trigger pride to rise up within us. And honestly, pride is the ultimate log in our eyes, isn't it? Think about it this way. Let's say that we take Jesus's admonition against us about the log and the speck very literal. Think about the more that you judge, the bigger and longer the log would grow. Physically, it'd be like Pinocchio's nose. The more you judge, the more it would grow. How long would it be before you would be unable to kneel before God with a giant log coming out of your eye? Could you even humbly bow your head before Him without that log running into the ground? Could you serve Him without turning and smacking somebody in the head with your log? It might seem to be a silly way of thinking about it, but spiritually speaking, it's exactly how that will work. And so some question for us to consider today. Disputable matters, or these are some questions we should consider today, sorry. Dispute, there's another point that we should consider this morning is that often these disputable matters, these matters of, I don't think God wants me to do this kind of thing. These disputable matters will always be personal. What do I mean by that? God has a very personal plan that He created for you and for you alone. And part of that plan maybe for you to abstain from certain freedoms that he has given others. I remember our senior pastor at Prayer House, his son would always come up to him and say, well, 
how come other kids in the church, they get to go to that dance? Or how come other kids in the church, they can go to that rated R movie? Or how come other kids get to do this and that? And, and I get stuck here because I'm the pastor's kid. It just isn't fair. And Pastor Ron always had the same answer. Others may, but you may not. God has that same kind of personal plan for each one of us. Maybe because He knows whatever freedom we want to indulge in, would be extremely destructive for us, our families, our witness, and our lives. That could be very, very well why he says no to us. Let's, let's use the example of wealth. Perhaps God has blessed you with the ability to simply see money as a tool, to use it for the glory of God. You're one of these people that no matter what you touch, it just, it just explodes with more wealth for you. But that person sitting across the aisle can't balance their checkbooks. They're always running into shortages in their finance or simply has been called to a job that doesn't pay very well, but they do that job onto the Lord. The rich person doesn't get to judge the poor person and think they're a better Christian. Conversely, the poor person doesn't get to look at the rich person and think that, well, since I'm poor, I'm better than he is, because the Bible talks about that. To do so would miss the mark. Paul sums it up here. And this is very important when it comes to maintaining peace within the church. Verse 22, it says, So whatever you believe about these things, keep them between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats or partakes in any of these doubtable things. Because he is not eating from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. This morning before we go into our time of communion, I'd like us to consider the words of one of the greatest and earliest of the Christian theologians, a man called Augustine of the city of Hippo. He said, and you can see this on many wall hangings, in necessary things, fidelity. In other words, with those close-handed issues, Christ is the only way to heaven would be a close-handed issue. We will not budge on that. In necessary things, fidelity. In doubtful things, those things that are gray areas, that one person may have a freedom for, but another person, they won't go anywhere near it. In those doubtful things, liberty. But in all things, love. Love. And if we can follow that, we're always going to hit the mark. We will be in the middle of the bullseye of faith. And we will be able to live in such a way that Jesus Christ can shine brightly through us. And He showed us the way. He showed us the way. And communion is a great way of seeing it. That He laid down His wants, His desires, His safety, his right to be without pain, he laid all of that down for you and I. So when it comes to those doubtful things, remember 
to love, to do everything with a first, a love for Jesus, and secondly, a love for one another.